This is Books for Breakfast, a podcast where we talk about books and writing. I'm Enda Wiley. And I'm Peter Sir. And you're all very welcome to this morning's show. And today is Poetry Day Ireland, April the 28th, 2022. A very exciting day. There's going to be events taking place all over Ireland. And the theme is Written in the Stars. And all over the country, people who are interested in poetry and poets have been sharing a poem, reading a poem, speaking a poem. So it's a great day. And here on the show today, we're going to be celebrating My Name Suspended in the Air, Leland Bardwell at 100, edited by Libby Hart and published by Lepus Print in Sligo. And it's a centenary collection of poems with personal reflections by Irish and international poets and writers, which celebrates the poet, novelist and and playwright who was born in 1922 and died in June 2016. So the coffee's made. The toast is on. And the books are on the table. Poet, novelist and playwright Leland Bardwell was born on the 25th of February 1922 and she died on the 28th of June 2016. This year marks the centenary of her birth and to celebrate it, Lepus Print, a new independent publishing house set in Leland's cherished Maharao in Sligo, have brought out a collection of Leland's poetry as selected by women who knew and loved her. Each poem is accompanied by a short reflection by the poet who chose it. Writers and poets such as Paula Meehan, Dyrne Griefe, Anne-Rene Curon, Katie Donovan, Rita-Anne Higgins, Mary Branley, to name a few, have all contributed to this wonderful collection called My Name Suspended in the Air, Leland Bardwell at 100, edited by Libby Hart, herself a contributor too a fine collection which celebrates the force that was Leland, both as an extraordinary person and an extraordinary writer. Leland Bardwell grew up in County Kildare in Ireland and was educated in Dublin and the University of London. Founder and co-editor of the literary journal Cyphers and a member of Estona, she lived in County Sligo where she founded the annual literary festival Shkriv in 1993. Her poetry collections include the Mad Cyclist, 1970, Dostoevsky's Grave, New and Selected Poems, which came out in 1991, and The Noise of Masonry Settling, um, 2006. Her memoir, A Restless Life, was published in 2008. Overall, Leland published 13 books and numerous stage and radio plays. She was a rebellious, unique writer who lived her life the way she wanted to, by her own rules. Her enduring legacy, as this new collection, My Name Suspended in the Air, reveals, is her steady gaze. She was witness-bearer to a widely and wildly diverse, unjust and complex world. Well, here at the breakfast table this morning to talk to us about Leland and to share some of her work and to celebrate her legacy as a gifted writer, we have writer Brian Layden and poet Eleni Quillanon, both distinguished friends of Leland, and it's a pleasure to have them both here. Um, Brian, if I'm just going to start off with you and I was wondering if you might tell us a bit about Leland's background. I mean, I know like her mother's people were the solidly respectable Colossus on her father's side were, were the Hones, weren't they? The, the artists, isn't that right? Yes. Uh, good morning, Peter and Inda and Elaine. Lovely to be chatting to you. 
and lovely to be talking about Leland. She has a very colourful history and background. Yes, the family Collises and Horns, and the Horns will be a name familiar to people, especially in the visual arts. Uh, there was Nathaniel Horn, senior and elder, both very renowned painters. And Evie Horn, the stained glass maker, was of the same uh, sort of ancestry and pedigree as Leland. And uh, Joseph Horn was actually one of the first uh, biographers of W. B. Yeats as well. There were writers too on the Collis's side, and but they were seen as more kind of stolidly and solidly respectable, whereas there was a kind of a bohemian uh, tint to the uh, to the horns. So it's from that kind of background. Her father actually grew up in Leeson Street, where Leland would end up living for a time. He would have uh, mm-hmm. been seen as. Uh, typical of that kind of Anglo-Irish generation. He gets a scholarship to Trinity. He he becomes an engineer to find work. He goes to Canada and this will lead to the fact that he'll join a Canadian regiment that will see him serve in the First World War. He will survive there, be decorated for heroism and he will actually then... Uh, in search of employment, fundamentally as an engineer, end up in India on the working on the Madras Railway. Um, and it's there that Leland is born. Uh, he brings uh, his wife uh, out to uh, uh, India, but only briefly. She is then back in Ireland, where the Horns end up buying this uh, big old pile of a house on Captain's Hill in Leakslip. Uh, it's big Irish house, but the ones, as I say, with the water coming through the roof and running down the walls. And she was always a kind of pains, wasn't she? She always was a pains to point out that she never considered herself Anglo-Irish, even though she had the accent, she had the turn of phrase, she had the love of horses, and she always invited her friends around for what she called supper. Yes. Uh, Leland would would have (laughs) kind of stridently... assumed her own identity not least I think because she had a very difficult relationship with her parents her mother in particular seems to have uh, been very cold particularly towards Leland while visiting a lot of love on her sister Paloma and this seems to have marked out Leland as feeling that there was never quite a fit for her either at home with her parents in that society or indeed in, in nearly any walk of life where she found herself there was always a deep yearning to belong while at the same time pushing back against it and taking nothing less than her own independent standards. In, in a recent article Brian mm-hmm. in, the, in the Irish Times that you wrote about Leland you said that she was she was big on kindness but short on tolerance. Only people who knew her understood that Leland's apparent ferocity mar- mm-hmm. masked her profound lifelong shyness the unencouraged child who'd buried her head in books to escape the belief heartlessly ingrained in her by her mother that she was ungainly, unbeautiful, unloved. And yet she kept a painting by her mother on her kitchen wall, didn't she? I mean, mean, I was wondering if you might, because you've kind of touched on that now, the the kind of, that shyness, her relationship with her mother and how this impacted on her as a person and as a writer. Well, if we think also in that article, and it's the beauty of having time to compose your words on paper, Peter, that you get to say these things so well. Uh, 
I would say that, you know, even at the end of her life, she travelled with uh, another Lepus print poet, Mary Brandley, to Leak Slip and wanted to be buried there. And actually, the, I'm not sure if it was kind of the sexton or the churchman there who said, well, we maybe could find room in the grave with your mother. And said, Leland, on top of my mother, eternity, no. <laughs> uh, but she wanted to be buried in Leak Slip. And if you read the memoir, A Restless Life, the, the, the lion's share of that memoir deals with her early upbringing there. It was hardwired mm. into her. The horses, the love of cars, that life, that place. And she asked that her ashes be scattered on the Liffey side and League Slip on the sunny side there. So um, I guess like all things, if you take the likes of McGahern, he may have deplored his father, but didn't uh, he become the major sort of source for his writing. Mm-hmm. And I think the working out of that relationship for Leland was a major, major source for the writing. And it's there across the poems. It's there in The Girl on a Bicycle, isn't it, as well? The, you know, the young character seeking comfort in literature and reading her way through all the books in foils to yes. any lending library in the town and and that. Good point. And those books are getting, though we, we were bringing yeah, Leland's right. work to notice for the centenary of her birth with this celebratory and it is an occasional collection. It's a limited issue as such because we know that her collected poems are coming. But the novels, uh, The House was republished and you can still get Mother to a Stranger, but the earlier novels are hard to find and there's room for those to be revisited, I think, and that whole early world as well to understand the writer more fully and better. Elaine, we'll turn to you now. Um, What's wonderful about this collection is that so many women writers remember Leland, but in their own ways. I mean, Brian was there talking about Mary Branley and that brilliant trip that herself and Leland made to Leakslip House. Um, But Tess Gallagher, the poet, I loved her piece. Uh, She said, being with Leland was like being with someone impish and wise and truthful. And Tess chose the witty poem, A Single Rose, where Leland's willed her body to science and the surgeon plucks a rose where her brain might have been. Um, Leland was such a dear friend to you, Elaine. You went back a long way. You set up Cypher's magazine together. Can you tell us a little bit about what drew you to her as a poet and a friend? Was she impish? Was she wise? Was she truthful? Impish, I suppose it's a word I wouldn't use about her, but she was she was very witty. She was very dynamic, but also in some ways very controlled. I met her first the, the night that Patrick Kavanagh died and people were falling around the place drunk and Leland was the most sober person present and she read a poem in this very precise ladylike voice and I thought uh, there was just something so real and alive about her that... Uh, made me think I wanted to know her better. I went around to see her in her basement flat, which was full of children in various states of... I had no children myself of my own at the time, so it was uh, you know, collapse, I suppose, was the state. And I saw the other side of her life, which was a bit chaotic, but <laughs> also something that she was comfortable in, that she... Uh, liked. She She liked Bohemia, she liked other artists. I think... It was with them that she felt really accepted. 
I mean, you mentioned Patrick Kavanagh there. Um, you know, when she moved from London back to Dublin and Leeson Street, there was a lively circle of writers and artists she knew. She knew Anthony Cronin, the painters, um, Robert McBride, Robert Colquhoun, and of course yourself and McDara Woods and Pierre Hutchinson. Friendships, as you said, Elaine, they, they did sustain her, didn't they? And sustain her work. Very much so. Yeah, I mean, she knew Cronin and Kavanagh from London uh, because she was a friend of Catherine Maloney who married mm-hmm. Kavanagh. And so uh, when she came back to Dublin, that was the the, the centre that she would have fo- come to pretty obviously. James Liddy was a very important presence at the time and he was publishing people who were not really accepted by the more canonical side mm-hmm. of Dublin writing life and that, that was a, quite an important part. And people like Macdara and Paul Durkin she knew from when they were very, very young. Mm-hmm. I was, you know, more grown up when I met her first. But it was uh, it, it was a very exciting uh, milieu, somewhat drink fueled, one would have to say. But work was being done as yeah. well. Yeah, because, I mean, you gave a sense of it there, Elaine. Hers was a bohemian life. It was full of children. There were financial pressures. There was writing. There's a struggling going on, young motherhood. But somehow in the middle of all the chaos and the confusion, she continued to write. She wrote not only poems, but articles for newspapers, children's stories for radio. Even I read some of her lyrics for her son's rock band and the chorus line was, I don't wear uniforms, <laughs> which sounds very Leland. <laughs> and by the late 1980s, I mean, she was even conducting creative writing classes in the city centre. I know Paula Meehan was remembering that. And so she was inspiring a rising generation of mostly female writers. And she was resilient. She never gave up a lane, did she? She was persistent as an artist. Mm. I mean, not all female, one would have to say. There were uh, she, young people she got, well, got on well with and there were, there were yeah. people like McDara and Paul, but uh, others as well. I remember the, a young Pat Boren, uh, for example. Um, <laughs> the other thing, I suppose, is that she was in, she was a good cooperative person. In fact, she was in at the start of the Irish Writers' Cooperative, publishing early work by people like Sebastian Barry, Desmond Hogan and many others. And uh, it's a pity that that collapsed. Mm. It was a bad time for support for the arts at the time. But uh, she, she was very generous with her time mm. with helping other writers. Yeah, I remember Pat Bourne. That's how I, in fact, I first met Leland was through Pat because he was kind of caring for her flat in York Street. And there would be a host of writers mm-hmm. coming in that door, people like Dermot Healy and writers like that. But Elaine, I'd love you to read now the poem of Leland's that you chose for this collection, My Name Suspended in the Air. It's called Elizabeth Has Shaved Her Head. And if you could just tell us why you chose it and maybe read it, we'd love to hear it. There's other, many poems I could have chosen, but... When I was asked to find a poem, I uh, remembered that in 1980 there was a big festival of Irish writers in in London and I think it moved on to other places afterwards. I was invited, but Leland wasn't. And I thought, I really need to show people what they're missing. So this poem had been quite recently published and it was a true story. In fact, there was a fairly deranged girl who at a certain point uh, cut off her long henna red plat and sent it to her lover who was a sailor and he was so horrified when he got the parcel that he jumped into the water. So the poem is called Has Elizabeth Shaved Her Head? (laughs) Has Elizabeth shaved off her hair 
has Elizabeth sent it to her sailor boy. Rockabye sailor round the rolling deep. Roll, my able-bodied man. Is her head as bald as a question mark? Is her head at all lovely now, sailor? Do you want to bend the sea with your weight? Dive for the herringbone weave on the dark henna plait. O sailor boy, rock on the rolling deep, for mad Elizabeth is dead. Do you shock easily, sailor? Do you shock? For mad Elizabeth took the bowls from her eyes with an iris stroke and folded her long, barren body. She folded up tight like a butterfly after its life's day is done. Sailor, fill your vessel, fill it like a whale, and skim, skim the waves like a waltz. Elizabeth does not wait, living, does not cast her net now. Sailor, the coast is clear. The Limerick graveyard ticks its tock. Morning opens its silver mouth. Will you dock easily now, sailor? Will you dock? Amazing poem. Gosh, it's an extraordinary poem, isn't it? Yeah, no, it's, oh, it's so beautiful. For, for, for now, it's my favourite. It's nearly, I think it's my favourite too, I think. Um, I've, I've read and reread that poem again and again and the imagery is so startling and striking and the idea of it as well. It's It really is a fantastic poem, isn't it's, it? Reality is what really got to her, I think. Elaine, you said in your piece as well that she wasn't invited to the Big Sense of Ireland Festival in London in 1980. Do you think is it fair to say that for most of her life she was marginalised as a writer? She was excluded from anthologies of Irish writing as well. And and, and if that's the case, what do you think was the reason for this? Just listening to that poem there, I was wondering, was it that her work had a kind of surreal edge to it? that it was hard to pigeonhole it in a way. What do you think? I think that's one reason. I think that when she was starting to publish in the 60s, uh, there was this divide between these very canonical uh, and to some extent, I think, London-focused, which was a bit ironic considering how long she'd lived there, between those two sides of Irish writing. And then I'm not actually sure that... She was she was very much supported by the feminist movement, by p- people like Attic Press and by small presses of various kinds. There was one called Beaver Row Press, for example, which published her second book. But uh, I think she got typecast a bit that uh, as somebody who wrote about things which wouldn't be mentioned at the time, like abortion and... Uh, about uh, living in Tala. And I, I mean, I do, I do think that she was becoming more recognised, obviously, in later life because there was such a body of work there. Possibly also the fact that she moved around. Also, she didn't really keep keep mm. her, her own work in proper order until fairly late on. She would move flat and things would disappear. And things were published in broadsheets and so on, which... They were quite hard to find when uh, her son John was looking for her collected poems. So there were various reasons. And I, many, many of the poems are about connecting and identifying with, with the hurt and, and the wounded. Um, I was thinking like when she moved to Dublin in the late 80s and lived in Tallis, she wrote about the difficulties of life that she witnessed there. Again, I'm thinking of a poem like Them's Your Mammy's Pills with its incessant chorus, Don't Touch Them, Them's Your Mammy's Pills. Or in the poem, A Mother Mourns Her Heroin Addicted Daughter. 
written for a close friend. She speaks in the voice of the city that has mm. failed the youngster. I'd raise my pavements to keep you safe. Open the balcony of your arms. She had a strong social conscience, didn't she? I mean, she delivered that with a kind of a, a dry wit and a sort of searing intelligence. She sympathised with people for whom life was just too much and who therefore were found themselves uh, taking refuge in drugs. Something that didn't happen to her because she was actually quite strong. Uh, I think, I mean, for a lot of her life she was living on the dole until Aesthana came along. She had, she lived in places that were almost squats and she was able to cope with that, but she knew perfectly well that lots of others weren't. The flat in York Street, she took because she couldn't stand living in Tala, but it wasn't the most salubrious place at the time to be living. She was she was living right in the middle of problems. She was living in the middle of people who were really stuck mm-hmm. in life. Brian, I mean, Brian, you've, you've written of, of Leyland's, I'm just quoting it now, sturdy genes, her combative nature and pure determination, her independence and forthrightness. And again, that, I think their quality is very much apparent in, in, in her poetry and writing. Yes. We were lucky in the sense that, I mean, as, as Elaine was saying, Leland is writing a very long time. There was a broad range of work to travel, to trawl through. Um, there was an element of luck in that when we the project was conceived that this would be how we would remember Leland and all those manifestations of her character and facets of her. Uh, the idea was a centenary and then it was Libby Hart, our editor, who did a wonderful job. Uh, she said, well, something about the word centenary is very militaristic and doesn't fit at all. So Leland Bardwell at 100 became you know, very important to the project. And then uh, the the poem Seven Rings is where the title comes from. That line is there. My name suspended in the air. It was a, it was one of these kindnesses that Leland just missed out on. There was a lady, a neighbour from Sligo, who was German originally and in Germany. She was dying with cancer. She rang out of the blue Leland. She wasn't there to take the call. And these the phone rings into the silence, and that would have troubled Leland because she always did want to be there for people and to help. And uh, it kind of, there's a certain hauntedness there that fits how Leland haunted the consciences of people who maybe overlooked the overlooked. Um, and she was confrontational in that sense as well, that she, it didn't sit well with her, that the, there was so such power imbalances in society and against women. The fact that the collection is entirely chosen by women uh we don't make a huge thing of that, but I do think it gives it a certain register and a certain empathy to to those facets of Leland that might have been missed otherwise. It just focused and concentrated that. And again, we, there was an element of luck because we just said, pick your poem. And if it's already gone, we'll let you know. But other than that, people had a very free hand. And yet it becomes a very representative selection of her life and her attitudes and her concerns, always with the underdog, always generous, always giving. And this was our give back, I suppose. In, indeed. And, and speaking of Leland as a poet of great wit and determination, I rem- I'm reminded of her poem, A Prayer for All Young Girls. And that was a poem chosen by Mary O'Donnell in his collection. And, and here she is now talking about why she chose it 
And, and we'd also hear Mary read the poem. The first time I saw Leland was in the queue for the big international readings yeah. taking place in Dublin's Mansion House during the James Joyce centenary year of 1982. Look, there's Leland Bardwell, a friend hissed. She stood there in dark-haired, raggle-taggle glory and, to my eye, looked just like a writer ought to do. By chance, a few days later, I spotted her novel Girl on a Bicycle in a second-hand bookshop and immediately bought it. The story held me in thrall, with its depiction of Leek's Lip in the 1940s, with houses and a street I recognised every time I passed through on the 66 bus. To my delight, Leland had lived there, not so far from where I was then living. But apart from such recognitions, the book held a lyrical beauty with its evocation of the young girl, the bicycle, and the exploration of a time in which being Protestant meant being automatically different in the quieter Ireland that was. As a young writer beginning, this novel meant something to me. It held up little signposts which announced, you could do this, or perhaps you might try to write this way. It's about remembering things too. So thanks, Leland Bardwell, for the whisper in my ear. A prayer for all young girls. Dear God, make me sophisticated. Dear God, make me highly equipped. Dear God, make me easily bored not tolerant, hard-working, energetic, not sober nor militant. Dear God, make me rich, taxi-minded, expeditious, vicious at the right times. Make me please, dear God, a thoroughgoing, sex-ridden bitch. Amen. Elaine, you, Leland had an instinct for wild and troubled people, you said yourself. And she 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 loved, as Brian was saying there, the kind of the outcasts, the unrepentant, the uniquely gifted. And she had a great love for the Russian poets and writers too, didn't she? Like Chekhov, Tolstoy, Akhmatova, Mandelstam. And finally, in her late 60s, she did get to visit Russia, didn't she? And I was just wondering, Elaine, do you remember her going and how important that trip was to, to Leland? Oh, yes. Uh, she went with a, a group. I think you had to in those days. And so she found it slightly odd to be corralled with a bunch of other middle-aged people, of course, because those are the people who go on tours. Yet uh, she managed to have these really extraordinary, solitary moments, strange encounters. You know, she was apparently uh, found smoking in the purlieus of a church and berated for that. And she managed to get into a strange conversation with a young man. So it was the the ability not just to, to go and see the places, to find herself locked into Dostoevsky's grave, well, locked into the, the cemetery with Dostoevsky's grave in it, almost missing her plane yeah. as a result, but that she also encountered people and I think encountered them on that level of strangeness which she was so alive to the strangeness of other people the way across for example language barriers uh, you, yeah. you you encounter them in a kind of extremity really if, if that yeah. isn't too fancy a way of putting it 
it must have been fun, Elaine, being her friend and hearing her coming back from Russia with all those stories. I'd say it was fun to hear it. Um, always, always um, great energy around Leland, I'd say. So Leland had six children, Billy and Anna, Jacqueline, Nicholas, Edward and John. And we're going to have her eldest, Anna Dunn, talking about her mother's love of Russia. It was great to hear you there chatting about it, Elaine. And she, Anna is going to read her mother's poem after Pushkin. I've chosen After Pushkin as one of my favourite poems, showing Leland's love of excitement and travel and her ability to engage with people of all nationalities, race or creed. She'd always wanted to visit Russia, where so many of her beloved poets and writers came from. Finally, she managed to trip in her late 60s, having learnt enough Russian to escape the controlling tour guides and explore on her own. This poem also shows her sense of humour and modest understatement of her own accomplishments. I can picture her familiar gesture of waving her hand nonchalantly and tossing her head. I recently visited St. Petersburg and having a sympathetic tour guide, specifically asked to visit Dostoevsky's and Pushkin's graves to follow in Leland's footsteps. It was an amazing experience. After Pushkin... A pinch of laughter opened up his face. Irish, he said. Ireland. What do you do there, really? With, oh, a wave of nonchalance. You know, I said. Write poems, books, you know, that sort of thing. Waste a lot of trees. A ring of comprehension. Rabbi Burns, he said. Ah, no, that other lot. Oh, Casey, Joyce a different kettle of Celtic fish. I see, he said, his tiny specks, transparent flowers of recognition. The portrait, him I know, I like him much. I just stamp passports. I had stepped across his threshold from this pin in the Atlantic and placed my brief amongst the idols and the pictures. Akmatova, Ossip and Nadeshta the Rubens, Caravaggio's, Matisse's, all histories combine. And he who takes no part in this idiot warp and woof of words gazes at me sternly from his window, nodding, sees how turning in a circle, everything comes around. So now you can see we're chronologically moving. We're heading from Dublin to Sligo now, Brian. You've written about walking from Ballyconnell to Ballinfull in Sligo and, you know, to, to Leland's cottage there to visit her. And you were fantastic friends and it must have been great to have her in the vicinity. And I wonder, how did she come to live in Sligo? And because I was thinking as well, it was the first time she owned a house. Um, she, was the, she was 84 when she got to own her house for the first time. Yeah, that's a, an extraordinary thought, isn't it, Peter? Um, she would have, when we were talking earlier about the work and as Elaine had said, you know, it was hard to keep track of where she was at and what she was doing because she was always living on the edge of poverty, nearly moving and trying to raise a family. And things only began. She did find a place to settle in Anna McCarrick. She was living in a little cottage there at the time. She knew, of course, all these writers and not least Dermot Healy, who had bought a house here in Maharao and it proved an extraordinary place for him and there was a great creative flowering in his own poetry when he moved to the sea here and he was a great enthusiast and promoter of the area to people and you already had the painter Sean McSweeney in the area and you had a 
the makings of an artistic colony in some level. So this old house was discovered and Leland had got some bursary at the time and she put that and she said unusually for a mother to be borrowing from her children to buy the house. But that's how it worked. She borrowed some money from her family and with that bursary she was able to buy this old house which would have belonged originally. Nice tie in there with Lissadell and the Gorbuth estate and all of that. And there were no actual deeds to be found for it. So a key just arrived in the post, a big old rusty key. The money was given over. And if Leland occupied the place long enough, she could have get deeds drawn up. So while she was had her first home, it would still be a while before it would be truly hers. And that was at Cluna, meaning the little meadow very close, right on the edge of the sea. And she was no sooner established in Sligo than she helped set up the Scree Literary Festival. And it was through that, really, that I got to know Leland. Uh, that was originally was an American poet, Jean Valentine. And then she was joined by Molly McCluskey and Mary Brandley. And later I joined her also. So uh, through that festival, I mean, Leland only had to pick up the phone and, you know, Miroslav Holub or, you know, uh, Doris Lessing would agree to arrive here. You know, Julian Barnes and Pat Kavanagh, his partner, and uh, Paul Muldoon. All these people would just arrive for Leland in Sligo for the Scream Festival. So there was a great sense of artistic community. And I learned and benefited from that hugely. And also... um when I moved later again to the same area here, as we call it, to Cape Paranoia, <laughs> where all the writers hang out, uh, we um, we formed a deep friendship that way through the books and the reading. So I would hike across the cliffs to Leland's house. We'd have a chat. She'd have all the new books read long before I could get round to them. I had to keep on my toes and keep up. And we'd have great discussions. And she was a lovely person to show work to. A great first reader. Generous. Took no sense of ownership of what you showed her. Just left you with some very positive information. And by the time you'd walked home, it would occur to you that she was also critiquing something that you better think twice about and maybe it should go. But said in the nicest gentlest way. So for all of that kind of person we portrayed as could be spiky in that, she could be very kind and very generous to other writers. So it was on that kind of footing that we established a close relationship. And that would see Leland towards the end of her life, you know. But we had some very good years before her health began to kind of deteriorate. And uh, it was more than a uh, a case of kind of minding her a little and ensuring that she maintained her freedom and independence. That was the hallmark of her entire life for as long as we could sustain that. She she was a wonderful friend to you, Brian. That sounds... Sounds great to have Leland living close to you. But I remember actually visiting her cottage at Cluna in the early 1990s. It was so close to the Atlantic that the waves were lashing up to the door. And I thought she was such an inventive person because we went down because of Shkreve. And that year that I visited, um, there was huge excitement because Miroslav Holub, who you just mentioned, had just arrived. And I think he was shocked that there was no money for the gas meter and he had to stumble into bed in the dark. And then I remember Leland's car was full of dogs 
drugs and he had to sit beside them. Um, and he was quite shocked by this. But I think apart from all the hilarity of that, the very fact that Leland had, as you said, Miroslav Holop there and other poets, it shows that there was a huge international dimension to Leland, uh, that she could, you know, organise such a vibrant literary festival that we were all talking about and we were all excited about. And it was lovely to hear you there, Brian, talking about how exciting a time it was in Saigo at the time, you know. But she she made many friends, as you said. Um, Molly McCluskey was her neighbour just up the road. There was Dermot Healy, obviously. Artists like Josie Gray as well. And here is one of her friends, the Australian poet Libby Hart, who edited this this beautiful collection. She's talking about her friendship with Leland and she's going to read her poem, Maharao Movements. Maharao Movements by Leland Bardwell. He repeated the word duvet as though it were a charm. Duvet, he said, curling his socks around her feet. Maharal Movements, selected by Libby Hart. Maharal Movements evoked so many things for me. Leland's playfulness and sensuality, her bed, the scatterings of books and newspapers around her house, cottage windows that would rattle from an approaching storm coming in from the Atlantic. I imagine the soft glow of embers in the deepest night. I sense warm-bloodedness and that most ancient need for comfort and intimacy. I acknowledge the duvet's magic once heat enfolds the speaker, that seeker of warmness. When I first met Leland Bardwell in 2008, She was halfway through a tense telephone conversation as Mary Branley and I stepped into Leland's Cluna Cottage on the Moharal Peninsula. Understandably preoccupied when she ended the call, Leland studied me with a wary gaze, then awkward silence followed. But I didn't know then, as I do now, that I would return to Moharal again and again, and that Mohara would become my second home. I didn't know then that Leland would be so intricately linked to my connections to this rugged and windswept place. It's an honour to be so affiliated. She was a beautiful, complex and marvellous rebel. I repeat the word, Mohara as though it were a charm. Another friend of Leland's was her neighbour for four years in Maharao in the 1990s, the American writer Molly McCluskey, who's now living in Washington, D.C. And here is Molly talking about the poem Dog Ear that she loved best by Leland. Despite its brevity, just four lines, Dog Ear contains the essence of Leland as much as any poem in The White Beach. Her way of looking at life that could seem offhand but was actually incredibly clear-eyed. The mix of compassion and lack of sentimentality. Doggier reads like a note to self concerning the most consequential event of our lives. There is Leland, just leafing through some metaphorical book, reminding herself of mortality. 
We dog-ear a page when we come upon a passage that has a special meaning for us. It's an intensely private act, inscribed with memory and history and associations not apparent to even our closest companions. What does it mean to dog-ear one's death? How much more private the act? Reading this poem, I have an image of Leland in a clear-eyed state, gently nudging herself, never forget the inevitable, then getting on with her day. Dog ear. I am turning my death over, like a page in a book. I dog ear it. I need to remember the place. Brian, life imitated art in Leland's 2002 published novel, Mother to a Stranger, a solicitor's letter arrives to inform its central character, Nan, that a young man claiming to be the son she gave up for adoption is anxious to meet her. Then, in a case of life imitating fiction, Leland herself had heard from the son she gave up for adoption in wartime Britain. But ill health prevented this from happening, didn't it? Shortly before the two could meet, she, she suffered a stroke. In the aftermath of the stroke on Leland, the effect it had on her, on her as, a, as a writer was kind of shocking, wasn't it? Yeah, Leland was very, it was an extraordinary thing through the internet, really, you know, in, in a restless life, her memoir, she it was a section dealing with that adoption and just giving up this child. And that would seem to be the end of that until the internet comes along and the novel comes out and someone says, well, that shouldn't be too hard a matter to trace that person back. So, um It is discovered that that child is still alive. He's a senior man now and he's got health issues of his own. But a meeting was set up and uh, it was intended that Leland would travel to England to meet him. And for one reason or another, perhaps she, you know, she was kind of very het up about all of that. Anyway, she suffered a stroke Mm -hmm. and the upshot of that was that extraordinarily was kind of just a blockage to the optic nerve. And Leland discovered... um, that she could write and she could read, but moments after she'd written whatever it was on the page, she couldn't read it back. Um, it was kind of discovered later that it's a very particular kind of condition. The, for Leland, that meant that she literally had to school herself in learning to write again. And those trips I made across the cliffs to meet her. I mean, I would see her with a school exercise book, copying down lines over and over again to re-educate herself. This woman who was extraordinarily well-read and books was her love. To some degree, she said, well, you know, that child caused kind of chaos at the start of my life and now chaos at the end of my life. And she was reconciled to it. She just was reconciled to it happening, but not to the consequences. So she battled and struggled back. And to to some extent, she did and was always very indomitable. I, I remember I, I'd got words that uh, a, a novel of mine, <laughs> Death and Plenty, was to get a read through for a kind of a stage version that was considered. And the people doing the adaptation had got word that they got some funding for it. And Leland immediately said, oh, we have to go. She was always ready to jump in the car and just take off and go. And I was having reservations. And here was this person who was putting all of this up against all of this and still ready to go. So that was the kind of Leland I knew. And there was that intertwining, as Elaine has pointed out, across the work between the personal life, the circumstances of the personal life and what she was writing about to the point that she was, you know, working 
on a kind of a dystopian novel at the end, uh, uh, you know, uh, right up to the last. And I'm hoping that that will actually see print to the repress later in the year. Success came to her later in, in life. I mean, in her late 80s, she won the Turkish Pen Organization's Dede Kirkwood Short Story Award, her 2002 novel Mother to a Stranger, was a surprise bestseller in Germany. And in 2011, at the age of 89, she travelled to the Oldborough Poetry Festival and was astonished to find herself rapturously received. Membership of Estona also was a bit of a lifesaver and enabled her to complete at least four of her books. These successes must have brought great joy to Leland. Yes. Uh, oh, yes. I think you know the fact that she, she was even able to help her children uh, rather astonished her. Um, and the fact she loved to travel and again, her children helped her to travel they, uh, when she was very, uh, really very old. Uh, they've travelled with her. They helped her. They uh, gathered round and uh, made things possible that wouldn't otherwise have been possible. Uh, I think that Aestana uh, was a particular validation because it came from that wide constituency of people uh, that she trusted the other artists. Um, living in Sligo, of course, also was made possible. Um, and the the festival, uh, the presence of other artists, people like Alice Maher and Derma Seymour, uh, all this, I think, gave her a place that was really hers. I think that was so important to her. It was wonderful to see her actually able to relax, able to get on with what she was doing. Uh, and enjoying herself, which, of course, she had always done. Yeah, well, it's been absolutely great to talk about the poet and writer Leland Bardell this morning with Eleni Quilnon and Brian Layden. And to celebrate this wonderful collection of Leland's poems chosen by women poets and writers and creatives that admired her so much and admired her work so much. It's called My Name Suspended in the Air. It's published by the new independent publishing house Lepus Print in Sligo, edited by Libby Hart. And it comes with a wonderful cover called The Hunter by the artist Alice Marr, who Elaine just mentioned there. And all details of My Name Suspended in the Air will be available on booksforbreakfast.buzzbrite.com But for now, I think it would be really wonderful to end with the sound of Leland Bardwell reading her poem, The Bingo Bus. The Bingo Bus. In Killinaden there was nothing, nothing, but near a town there was the Bingo Bus. The Bingo Bus, the Bingo Bus, nearer to thee, my God, the Bingo Bus, and stripped the willow they played with the driver, trust the conductor, danced turkey in the straw. Every Thursday without fail the ladies rode on the Bingo Bus. And booze before bingo and after and lots of booze in between, returning late from bingo, they ate the conductor whole. We in Killinarden wanted oh so much to have a bingo bus of our own. We wrote to the authorities, begged and begged on our knees. TDs were hammered, we marched, made flags, went on hunger strike outside the doll. You lot aren't ready for bingo, you've only been here a year. You must have lots more babies before you deserve a bingo bus. So every year to the clinic, three out, one in, four out, one in, but still no bingo bus. I had to leave Killinarden, wearied from making flags, marching and lobbying and having kids. So I moved right into a hotel, St Brendan's is its name. I make sanitary tiles for bingo players, I do my bit for bingo players. I'm on the ball for bingo players, I'm saving up for bingo, saving up for bingo. 
We, I think we've reached the end of our Books for Breakfast podcast this morning. I'm definitely rushing off to have more coffee. And I'm Enda Wiley and I have Peter Sarah here with me. And Peter, would you like to tell everyone about the details of the podcast if they'd like to listen again? Well, you can subscribe at all the usual sources, Google and Apple and so on. And if you want to check out the notes that go along with this podcast, you can go to booksforbreakfast.buzzsprout.com. And yeah, so... We'll be back again. We'll have the toast on. We'll have the kettle boiling. We will have more books to discuss. And we're looking forward to having you here. So goodbye, everybody. Goodbye.